Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, page 975. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for that time when Jesus was born into our world. When the Word of God became flesh. Lord, we pray that you would give us your Word again this morning and embody it in our own lives. Make it flesh once more in us that we may live out the things that you teach us for Jesus' sake and for your glory. Amen. Be careful what you pray for. I think that's a a lesson that we we see as we transition from chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel to chapter 10. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus has his disciples around him and he tells them about this great harvest there is all these people who need to be reached with the good news of the kingdom. Uh, And then he says to them, pray, ask God to send workers into that harvest. But then in the opening verse of chapter 10, we find that these 12 men end up being the answer to their own prayers. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Fellas, you've been praying that God would send people out. The people he's going to send are you. Be careful what you pray for. Be careful when you pray for God to send people into places with the good news of the gospel because we may be the answer to our own prayers. In verse 1, we read about Jesus giving them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. If you've been with us this last couple of months, you'll know that those are exactly the things that Jesus has been doing, recorded for us in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's gospel. So what we have here is simply Jesus giving his power to his disciples. He's basically saying to them, right, You've seen me do it. Now I'm giving you my power because I want you to do it. All the stuff that you saw me do, go. You do it. And incredibly, that's still the reality today. The main way in which God works in the world is through his disciples, those who follow Jesus Christ, when he gives them his power, the power of his spirit. Before Matthew invites us to sit in on this first class of Jesus' evangelism training seminar, it's like he places us beside the door and lets us watch the others in the class file in. He introduces us to the 12 disciples. Now, we we know five of these guys already from our studies in Matthew's gospel. We know the fishermen, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John. We met them in chapter 4. A few weeks ago, we met Matthew, the tax collector, in chapter 9. So we're meeting seven others here for the first time. Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, 
and Judas Iscariot. Whenever you watch these disciples of Jesus moving into the classroom and take their seats, you can't help but notice that they're a real mixed bunch. They're not the kind of people who'd normally end up together in one place. And what makes this more unusual is is the purpose of their meeting. They're meeting to sit under Jesus, the teacher of the law, the rabbi. You see, the rabbis of Jesus' day, they generally only accepted the best of the best as their students. To be a, a student of a rabbi, you had to be from the right part of town, You had to be on the right side of the law, and you needed to have a real demonstrable mind, a real strength of mind, a real strong intellect. You needed to demonstrate that you were going to be a good student of the law of the Torah, that you could learn, and that one day you could grow to be a rabbi for yourself. That's who normally ends up in the class with the rabbis. But here, in stark contrast, These guys that Jesus invites to follow him, they aren't the best of the best. Some of them were uneducated fishermen. One of them at least was an extreme nationalist. There's another one who'd been a traitor and had sold out to Rome. And among the 12, we find Greek names, we find a Judean name, we find Galilean names. This is a real mixed bag of people here. They're from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of abilities. In a sense, what Jesus has collected together here is like a microcosm of Judaism of his time. So in a culture where rabbis only choose the best of the best, those with first-class honors degrees from the right universities, Jesus chooses a, a mixed bag, and these are the guys who are going to help him to share the good news of the kingdom. Are are we surprised by that? Are we surprised that Jesus didn't try a little bit harder to choose people of real ability? At least good people, godly people. Well, we shouldn't be. Because this is how God works. God doesn't choose the best of the best. He never did. In his first letter to the believers in Corinth, Paul reminds them this. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise He chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Friends, Jesus' disciples aren't the best of the best. They were a mixed bag, and they still are. There's more to this class that Jesus gathers around him, though, than meets the eye. When Jesus chose 12 disciples, that was a massively symbolic gesture. You see, there were 12 tribes in Israel. It's as though Jesus was saying, 
these guys who I'm gathering together here, these are the, the new Israel. These are the new people of God. From here on in, the people of God is no longer an ethnic group. The people of God is that group of people who have responded to the call of Jesus on their lives, who are his disciples. At first glance, verses 2 to 4 of Matthew 10 aren't that inspiring. It's a list of names of some people whom we know, some who we don't, who have become disciples of Jesus Christ. When I was a wee fella, I learned about another list in the Bible, a list of names. And as soon as I heard about this list, I knew I wanted my name to be on it. It was called the Lamb's Book of Life. Maybe you've heard of it. We're told about this book in Revelation. It's a book which lists the names of all those who are right with God through Jesus, all those who can expect one day to be in the the wonderful, perfect presence of God in heaven. As a wee fellow, when I heard about the Lamb's Book of Life, I couldn't bear the thought that my name wouldn't be on that list. I still can't bear the thought that my name wouldn't be on that list. But I don't worry about that because I've trusted Jesus Christ and I live my life with full assurance that my name is on that list. But see this Lamb's Book of Life? There's a way of thinking about it and a way of understanding it that I think is problematic. For a lot of people, that's all they want out of their life with God, to know that their name's on a list somewhere of people who've scraped their way into heaven, who've got across the line, who no matter what kind of lives they live, will be welcomed by God into heaven. They want their name on the Lamb's book of life, but they don't want anything much to do with the Lamb. They don't want any ongoing relationship with Jesus. Friends, as I said a moment ago, I, I live with full confidence and gratitude to God that my name is in the Lamb's book of life. But see that list in Matthew 10, verses 2 to 3, that's where I want my name to be. With those 12 and with all the people through the history of time who have joined with them and who have become disciples of Jesus Christ, people who aren't any more content to be saved from death, but people who want to learn a new way to live, the way of Jesus. Friends, you know that I want your name on the Lamb's Book of Life. Of course I do. Of course. But I would long for each one of us also to have our name on on this list here. This list, this mixed bunch of people of no great ability, of all sorts of backgrounds, who are followers of Jesus Christ. When we get down to verse 5 of Matthew's record, Jesus' evangelism seminar begins. He begins to teach the fellows how they should go and reach out with the good news of the gospel. 
He says, don't go among the Gentiles or any towns of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus' first lesson on evangelism then is pretty simple. He says, start at home. Now, we need to tread carefully here because there are some specific aspects of Jesus' teaching in these verses that won't transfer directly into our context and into our thinking about evangelism. Whenever Jesus sent these disciples, first of all, to their Jewish community, that was entirely consistent with his own practice. That's what Jesus did, actually. Jesus worked among his own people, by and large. His public ministry was on his own Jewish community. Now, maybe you're sitting there, and and this is making you a little bit uneasy. This notion that Jesus focused on his own ethnic group, that he appeared to be be prejudiced almost towards them. Well, actually, this focus of Jesus on Israel underlines God's unshakable faithfulness. You see, God's promises in the Old Testament all have a, a... a very local focus in Israel. The promises made to Abraham, Moses, and David, all of those are first of all to Israel. So whenever Jesus comes along, those promises don't cease to exist. It's it's natural, actually, that Jesus' ministry would first be to Israel. And in the end, it's because Jesus properly fulfilled those promises that those outside of Israel end up being blessed. Isn't that what what God had promised to Abraham all those years ago? He had promised him that all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, all the peoples on the earth are going to be blessed, but I'm going to do it through your family, through Israel, all people. So that's why we find Jesus beginning his ministry in Israel. Our situation, as I've already flagged up for you, isn't identical with this situation in which Jesus and his first disciples operate. But I still think there's a principle here that we need to to make note of for our outreach to have any integrity. Whenever the risen Lord Jesus commissioned his his disciples in Acts chapter 1, he told them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, but not before they'd been his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria on their own doorstep. It strikes me that there are lots of evangelical churches in Ulster who are wonderfully and prayerfully committed to taking the gospel to all parts of the world. But the same congregations find it harder to reach the houses and the streets around them. The irony is lost on them. They're willing to cross the world with the gospel, but crossing the street, they're not so interested or they're terrified. Don't misunderstand me here. I'm not undermining the need for a cross-cultural mission. We long to see the far-flung corners of the world reached for Christ. We really do. But what about Eastleigh Crescent? And what about Hillview Avenue and Sinclair Street? 
Do we have the same vision for the people there that we do for people in Nepal and in India? Or is it too difficult for us? Is it too demanding to work out how we might reach them and then to do it? Is it somehow easier for us to have all our focus half a world away? Is it too too costly for us to think of how we might reach these folks here? Lesson one deals with the where question. Jesus says, begin at home. And in lesson two in verse seven, he deals with the what question. What are the disciples to preach? He says, as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Now that really shouldn't surprise us by now because this message time and time again, Matthew tells us, this is what Jesus preached. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Friends, this is still and always will be the message that the world around us needs to hear. People need to hear that God is their creator. He's the king of this world. People need to understand that by right, Jesus, God's son, ought to be king of their lives. If Jesus isn't king of their lives, then then they need to repent They need to turn their lives around and start living differently so that Jesus now is king of their lives. That's the message which the church has always brought to the world and which we must bring with us. That's the good news that Jesus preached, that each person can repent, can know forgiveness of sins, and can be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Lesson one, begin at home. Lesson two, preach the kingdom. In verse eight, Jesus shares lesson number three. Don't just preach the kingdom, demonstrate its presence. He tells his disciples to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. Of course, that's exactly what Jesus has been doing in his ministry. In effect, he's telling these guys, Do the things that I did and say the things that I said. You've seen me do it and say it. Now it's your turn. Do the same. We've talked about this a number of times recently, so I don't want to labor the point this morning. Jesus' healing ministry and his mighty deeds served to demonstrate the truth that he was preaching. The kingdom of God really had arrived in a new and a wonderful way in Jesus. We can't perform the same dramatic level of healing that Jesus was able to perform. It doesn't even seem to be Jesus' desire that we do so. Now, there are branches of the church who would disagree with me about this. But it seems to me that at that moment in time, there was a a special need for Jesus to be at work in this way to demonstrate the inbreaking of the kingdom that isn't ongoing, certainly not uniformly in all places at all times. In Matthew 28, when Jesus commissioned the church at large to take the, the kingdom to the world, he didn't mention any 
involvement in healing at that point. If you look at the early church, it's true that there were sporadic moments of healing, but there's no sense that healing across the board, all people at all times, was an expectation of people in the church. We won't be able to heal in the same dramatic way that Jesus did and in the same dramatic way that his first disciples did. But we ought to expect to minister in such a way that there's a real evident presence of the kingdom demonstrated wherever we are. If people don't see that life is different and life is better because the kingdom is in the midst of God's people, then our words ring hollow. Is this why so much evangelism in Ulster does ring hollow? Are we hitting a nail on the head here? Is there no power in our community? Is the kingdom of God not being demonstrated? First lesson, begin at home. Second lesson, preach the kingdom. Jesus' third lesson, don't just preach the kingdom. Demonstrate it in your communities. And we'll finish for this morning with lesson number four in verse nine. Jesus seems to be saying, keep it simple. He tells his disciples, don't take gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunics or sandals or a staff. Again, this is another one of these verses, a bit like the healing one, that people like to make into a a rule. This is the way you must do ministry. It's not. In Luke chapter 22, we read of a time when Jesus commanded his disciples to take a purse with them, to take a bag with them, to take a sword with them, to take what they need for ministry. What Jesus is saying here has a very specific application to these disciples at this time. But again, I think there's a a general underlying sense of something here that we shouldn't let pass us by. The general lesson, I think, here is to keep it simple when we go out with the gospel, to travel light. When you go to some places these days and to some seminars, you'd imagine that you couldn't possibly reach people for Jesus unless you had a budget of thousands unless you had all sorts of technology and trappings, unless you had all sorts of clever evangelistic schemes and tools. What does Jesus give the guys when he sends them out? Nothing. He says, you go and go in the power that I give you. Friends, we can make evangelism and outreach so complicated that you need a a master's degree to understand it, that's wrong. Our best and our most authentic outreach is when, when obedient people respond to the call of Jesus and go in the power of Jesus. Jesus gives us a lesson here, I think. Keep it simple. Don't over elaborate. It's great, I think, to be studying Matthew chapter 10 at this point in our congregation's development because last year in the autumn of 2006, we gave a lot of thought to evangelism. So here we get a chance to recap 
Um, for those of you who didn't like those weeks about evangelism, I'm sorry because we have another three weeks coming and it's, it's Jesus' fault this time, not mine. He taught on evangelism and we have come to that point now. I wonder how we've done since October and November when we thought together at length about evangelism. Maybe some of us were, were encouraged then and, and actually have been able to live somewhat differently as a result of things we thought about then. Maybe you've struggled. Maybe you've forgotten that we did anything about evangelism uh, in the months before Christmas. I think we all need motivation, a reason to go out with the good news of Jesus. And so did the first disciples. Jesus gives it to them in a small phrase tucked away in the passage we have looked at this morning. In verse 8, he said, Freely you have received. Freely give. He's making the point, fellas, all the goodness, all this wonderful new life that you now have, you've been given as a gift. Take that gift and pass it on. Pass it on. Pass it on. For the rest of your lives, be people who are passing on the good thing that God has given you. Freely you have received. Freely give. Someone once said that evangelism is simply one beggar telling another where he found bread. Have you, if you've found the bread, many of us have, are we, are we passing it on? Are we telling other people where they can find the bread of life in Jesus? Freely we have received. Freely give. We're going to sing our closing hymn just now. Some of you in the congregation, this will give your age away. As I was concluding there, a song will have come to your mind. It was written in 1972. People were still wearing flares back then. It was a, it was a different time. But it was a wonderful song picking up on the words of Jesus here, encouraging God's people to pass on the good thing that God has given them. I'm hoping that enough of us here will know it. It'll depend on your, your church background and your age and a few other things, but it's a very simple song. So we'll stand and we'll sing together. It's not in our books, so I can't give you a number. Freely, freely, you have received. Freely, freely give. God forgive my sins in Jesus' name.